As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Uh, Tracy, I know it's uh, early morning time in Hong Kong where you are right now, but did you hear the big news while you were sleeping? <laughs> um, well, I'm trying to think. I guess I didn't. What was the big news while I was sleeping? Maybe maybe you saw it before you went to bed, just that they, they freed the ship. Oh, yeah. Maybe, so, maybe that happened before you fell asleep. It did. That happened during the working day in Asia. They got it floating, um, and then they got it, I guess, more floating or more free. Yeah, it's good news for global supply chains. <laughs> global factories, retail outlets, everyone uh, breathing a big sigh of relief as the, uh, the ever-given ship that was uh, stuck in the Suez for six days. Uh, as of right now, we're recording this March 29th, uh, New York time, 7 p.m. New York time has been, uh, it's been freed. It's floating again. The thing that I really loved about, you know, this very special week where we were all focused <laughs> on this one container ship that was stuck in a canal was that First of all, everyone suddenly took an interest in global shipping and transport and global trade, which is something that usually people don't necessarily think of that much, or at least they don't think about how stuff actually gets to them. People think about global trade, but not necessarily the infrastructure and the industry that kind of underpins it. So last week was a really good one for everyone to sort of sit back and consider how globalization actually works and how the uh, the flow of all these goods is actually affected. Absolutely. Also, like everyone becomes like a container ship expert like overnight. <laughs> but the good news is like you and I are like kind of experts because we've actually talked to one before. Hey, I have read two books on shipping. So, you know, I feel like I'm uh, I'm firmly up there as an expert. I'm joking, obviously, but fair enough. But I am, uh, you know, the next best thing because we did an episode back in January mm. where we talked about uh, container ships. And so that turned out to be uh, very, um, uh, very auspicious because then I knew like two or three facts that I was able to like put in tweets and stuff like that. Which yeah. is, you know, more than I would have otherwise been able to. Well, look, it was a great episode and there are multiple issues affecting shipping at the moment. So we have the gridlock in traffic because of the um, coronavirus crisis and also 
the sort of changes in the direction of global trade. So, you know, stuff getting really snarled between China and the U.S. because lots of people in America are just buying more and more things during uh, the pandemic. But then we also have a separate issue, which is that ships are so freaking big that A, they get stuck in canals and B, they also contribute to um, that global snarling of uh, of shipping traffic yeah. instead of actually alleviating it. Exactly right. So back in January, we talked uh, about the high cost of shipping these days. We spoke with Mark Levinson, who is the author of The Box, famous book, The Box, how the Great. shipping container made the world smaller and the world economy bigger. And he said something on that episode, which was very uh, auspicious or very, uh, very timely, uh, which was that a big part of the problem was that ships are just massive these days, and that creates its own um, problems for the uh, logistical system of the globe. And then, of course, one of the biggest ships in the world ended up jamming the Suez, and that was sort of a a freak accident. There was a sandstorm, some really great uh, reporting on exactly how it went down. Nonetheless, it was sort of an example of what he was talking about, which is that these gigantic ships Uh, are bigger and not, you know, the infrastructure for shipping is not necessarily optimized for ships these large. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I'm very excited. We have Mark uh, back on uh, the podcast. Everyone loved the last one. And this time we're going to focus just on this question, the problem with really big ships. So, uh, Mark, thank you for coming back on Odd Lots. Hey, Joe, glad to be with you. Tracy, good to be with you tonight. So the Suez is uh, is uh, free again. Um, the Ever Given has been floated. It went down the canal. Nonetheless, as you pointed out back in January, uh, large ships are problems. So let's just start with the question of when we talk about a large ship, I mean, all shipping containers ships are large, but when we talk about a large ship, what are we really talking about here? Well, shipping guys use the the term TEU. TEU means 20-foot equivalent units. Uh, the size container you see on the back of a truck when you're driving down a highway is typically about 40 feet. So if you take the number of TEUs and divide by two, that tells you how many truckloads are on the ship. Hmm. So we're talking here about a vessel uh, that was roughly 20,000 TEUs. In other words, it was capable of holding as much cargo as roughly uh, 10,000 over-the-road trucks. Wow. Uh, this is not the biggest vessel out there on the seas. Uh, the biggest that are afloat now uh, in the container ship line uh, can hold 24,000 TEUs or as much cargo as 12,000 trucks. So that's a lot of freight on a single vessel. So talk to us exactly about the economics driving the shift towards bigger ships. So, you know, it's not like people woke up one day and said they're going to build big ships for the sake of it, um, or at least maybe some people did, but not everyone. There were supposed to be efficiencies that were targeted, right? The first modern container ship voyage was back in 1956. And the ship that made that trip was called the Ideal X. And it carried 58 containers. <laughs> Go from 58 to 12,000, and you can see the sort of growth that's gone on in this industry. Most of that time, ships got bigger, small step by small step. Okay, they, they, the, the next generation added a few hundred more containers uh, at best. And so ships were getting steadily larger, but 
moderately so. And then in uh, 2003, uh, the shipline Maersk, which is based in Denmark, as I think everyone knows by now, uh, decided, A, that it was in danger of running out of capacity, so it needed some big ships, and B, that it really wanted to get a jump on everybody else by having much bigger ships. And so it commissioned a series of seven vessels. Uh, these ships, it turned out, were 60% larger than any other ships that were on the ocean at that point. That's not what had been advertised, but that's what turned out to be the case. So they were just hugely uh, large compared to anything else that was at sea or uh, in the order books at this point in time. Those Maersk ships, the first was called the Emma Maersk, uh, came online starting in 2006. These very large ships, uh, Emma Maersk was capable of carrying about 15,000 TEUs, in other words, 7,500 truck-sized containers. And assuming that she was full, she could do that much, much more cheaply than any of the other ships being used uh, in, in the industry. And so the competitors looked at this and said, oh, we got to do something too. We've got to build ships at least as big as the Emma Maersk, or we're going to have higher costs. And yet they were faced with a dilemma, which was if they build higher, bigger ships and everybody else built bigger ships, then there was going to be a whole lot of capacity coming onto the market, and that was going to cause a problem too. Most of the ship lines ended up building bigger ships, and you started to see uh, around 2010, you started to see ships of 17, 18,000 TEUs going on, and now um, they've been up into the high teens and then into the 20s, such as the one that was just stranded in the, the Suez Canal, and now we're talking uh, 24,000 TEUs. Do they save money? Well, they save money on the ocean leg of the transport if the ship is full or close to full. For most of the past decade, the ship lines had this problem that there wasn't all that much cargo. They had really overestimated the growth in international trade. And so they were running these enormous ships around the oceans half empty. And that was a recipe for losing a lot of money. Many ship lines went bust. Others were forced to merge. And the pandemic kind of bailed out the shipping industry. Hmm. When Americans couldn't take vacations and Europeans couldn't take vacations, they couldn't go out to the restaurant, they couldn't go to a concert, couldn't go to the theater, they started spending their money on stuff. And all of a sudden, the ships got full of factories in Asia revved up and all this cargo was, was filling these vessels, really, for the first time. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So going back to um, the, the, the dawn of the really big ships here, I mean, it's interesting, this sort of, I don't know, maybe it's, it's a game theory because everyone wants to have the cheapest shipping. And so, okay, everyone feels they need to compete in larger and larger, more efficient ships. On the other hand, that creates all this inventory and a problem. But I guess, like, was it a problem? Is that was the thinking back in like say like two thousand five, two thousand six that like well globalization just keeps getting bigger, world trade keeps growing. There's this big commodities boom going on. China is buying stuff voraciously. So essentially, yeah, it creates some risks, but ultimately, at least back then, it looked like volume would just sort of keep growing forever, and that would take care of any of the capacity, the capacity buildup. Yes, absolutely, Joe. The expectation was that. International trade would continue to boom from uh, the late 1980s until uh, the um, 2007, 2008. International trade grew more than twice as fast as the world economy. And the expectation was that that was going to continue and that there was going to be a need for shipping capacity to handle uh, all of these uh, exports from Asia that were expected to come. And of course, uh, after the financial crisis, uh, trade did not pick up as it always had after recessions. So there were a lot of half-empty ships sailing around. So one thing I've wondered is if we assume the counterfactual, like let's say that global trade had boomed, would the megaships be more efficient or would there still be issues with, for instance, their flexibility and their ability to adapt to changing trade routes, changing demand, and things like that? Uh, if world trade had continued to boom, there would be a couple of things that would be different now. One would be that there would not have been a ton of container shipping companies going out of business. So there would be mm -hmm. a lot more competition in the industry. Uh, given the number of firms that have gone out of business, and alliances between the surviving ship lines, there are really only three groups that dominate this industry now. So it's somewhat of an oligopoly. And that would have been less likely to happen had uh, world trade remained uh, robust. Uh, the other thing would be that ship lines would have made um, some money and they might have behaved quite differently from, from the way that they ended up uh, behaving. But the land side problems would not have gone away. What you're pointing to is, is the fact that the ship lines really ordered these huge vessels because they thought they were good for themselves. They didn't really pay much attention at all to the whole goods transport system. They were not asking the question, well, what happens when these show up at uh, the container terminal? Is the terminal able to handle them? Uh, will the railroads be able to get enough trains in and out? Will truckers be able to handle all these boxes? Will the harbors be deep enough that we can sail these ships in in the first place? Those sorts of questions really didn't get enough consideration. And I think that even had trade uh, remained more robust than it proved to be, these problems with the freight transport system would have developed because the, the container ship line said, here, we've got this thing which is good for us. You guys, you ports, you railroads, you, you truckers, you guys deal with this. 
So this was what you brought up in our last conversation, these sort of bottlenecks that have emerged because uh, of the size of the ships. So let's go into that a little bit further. Um, A, walk through specifically how the uh, size of the ships are, I don't know if incompatible is the right word, but problematic for the ports and the sort of land-based shipping movement. And why didn't uh, the shipping companies foresee this sort of like seemingly obvious thing? Like if you have a plug, you want to make sure it fits in the outlet. Why was this sort of not on their radar? Well, I'll answer the second half of that first. Okay, sure. The the shipping lines pretty much took the attitude that ports, it's your problem to deal with this. Railroads, we're bringing you the cargo. You figure out how to get it out of the port. Okay. It was their attitude that they're in the shipping business and everybody else who's part of the logistics system ought to just deal with what's best for them. So that's where where that went. Uh, I think in, in terms of the the challenges posed by these very large ships. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Sure. These mega ships, these ones that hold 20,000, 22,000, 24,000 TEUs, they are not longer than the ships that preceded them. To handle all this cargo, they're wider. Ships have grown wider. Well, think about how the cargo is typically moved on and off a container ship. The container ship pulls up to a wharf. There are cranes alongside the vessel, and each of these cranes lifts containers off the vessel, puts them onto a a little carrier that's uh, on the ground. The carrier takes the uh, container away, and another carrier brings an outbound container that goes onto the ship. Well, since the ships are not longer than their predecessors, there's no room for additional cranes alongside the ship. But since the ships are wider, it takes longer each time a crane reaches out with a container and takes the container over to the far side of the ship. So it takes an additional few seconds to lift the average container off the ship, and it takes an additional few seconds to put the average container onto the ship. That may not sound like much, but you're multiplying these few seconds times thousands upon thousands of containers and all of a sudden you're delaying the vessel. Okay, it's it's stuck in port for longer than it wants to be stuck in port because they can't get the ship uh, discharged and reloaded in time. So the cargo is delayed. Oh, there have been uh, numerous uh, examples where ships left China late, late, late. At some points, uh, 30 or 35% of the vessels leaving China have been behind schedule. There have been sailings canceled because a ship couldn't complete its sailing in time to do the next sailing. And these are a result of the difficulty of loading the ships and also of the fact that these vessels were built to steam slowly. In previous iterations, container ships were able to travel somewhat faster. It was decided by the folks who designed these mega ships that they should steam slowly, in part because that saves money. They burn less fuel, certainly less fuel per container. And second, they produce less greenhouse gas emissions because the greenhouse gas emissions come from burning fuel. So these slow vessels are environmentally better and and they don't waste energy. That's all well and good. But what it means is that once they fall behind schedule, 
they can't catch up again. They can't go faster to make up the time that perhaps was lost in port. So there are a couple of examples of how uh, these uh, very large ships really have uh, exacerbated the problems in supply chains. They, they have a lot of trouble just delivering the goods on time. So you mentioned this idea of the ships getting wider, and I suppose that's our, our cue to talk about the canal. But I mean, talk to us about how going down the Suez Canal usually works and whether or not that process has become more difficult as ships got larger. I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert on the, the uh, hydrology of the Suez Canal because I'm most definitely not here. Um, the Suez Canal uh, was dredged to make it deeper for these very large ships and for other very large ships, just as many harbors uh, have been dredged to enable uh, these very large ships to go through. Uh, the, the vessel that was grounded in the uh, Suez Canal, the Ever Given, required uh, 17 and a half meters of water, just about 52 feet between the water line and the bottom of the vessel. Okay, so that's a lot of water. They need a very deep, the ship needs a very deep channel uh, to steam in. And if the ship gets forced out of that channel for whatever reason, uh, there's a lot of potential for bad things to happen. That's true in a harbor. Uh, that's also true uh, in a canal. Uh, the, the channel is not that wide, and sometimes events occur. Uh, you do have winds that uh, can blow up against the vessel. Uh, remember, a, a ship like this is a quarter mile long. It has nine or ten layers of containers stacked on its deck in addition to the containers below deck. So ten layers of containers, each container, say it's eight feet high, that's 80 feet above the deck and a quarter mile long, and it's like a wall. So if there's a really strong gust of wind, it's one more source of pressure on the ship. It can, can push the ship. And container ships have had problems with this uh, in the past. I think the size makes the situation a little bit worse. This particular container ship was actually involved uh, in an accident in Hamburg, Germany, a few years ago. The ship's only three years old, so a few years ago means two, I believe, in, in 2019, when, again, the ship was uh, blown a little bit and it uh, ran up against a ferry boat. And accidents happen sometimes, but uh, the, the large size of a, the sh a vessel of this, um, this magnitude and, and the large amount of containers stacked on the deck, I think, makes perhaps for a smaller margin of error. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zooming back out to the the sort of global situation that we have right now, and it's ongoing and there's all these delays and every retailer last quarter uh, talked about that. How does, uh, you know, this this phenomenon of super large ships creating tension at the ports, obviously, it's been going on for a while. But how in this current environment are they, uh, you know, this sort of mismatch between the capabilities of the ports, the transportation system and the size of the ships? How is that exacerbating the current issues that we're seeing with trade all over the place? Well, the problems in the ports, I think, tend to slow down. Uh, Once the ship gets there, it has to unload, right? Has to discharge its cargo. We've certainly had some complaints in the United States that the ships were not waiting to be fully loaded. They wanted to get back to China and they Mm. wanted to take empty containers with them back to China just so there could be more Chinese exports. Um, There have been complaints from the U.S. farm sector that farm goods that normally move in containers uh, haven't been accommodated. Typically, the uh, westbound freight on the Pacific moves at a much lower rate uh, because most of the cargo is coming east from Asia to the United States. And so these guys are looking to send containers of, of soybeans or of, of um, uh, meat products or other things uh, to Asia. And they're complaining uh. they can't get enough containers because as a result of the, the mess in the ports, the ships just want to get out of there and, and won't wait for the outbound containers. So uh, that mm. is, is one example of the sorts of problems that, uh, that people are seeing. When you have an event like uh, happened in the Suez Canal. Well, some vessels decided to go around um, Africa to to uh, get between uh, Asia and Europe. Well, that's a longer trip. Okay, that adds uh, two to three weeks to the chip trip between uh, Asia and Northern Europe. If each trip is going to take a longer period of time, that means the vessel can't make as many trips over the course of a year, which means it can't carry as much cargo over the course of a year. And so you can see that there's going to be even more pressure, for a while at least, uh, on uh, the supply chain. So we talked a little bit about this in the intro, but one of the great things about this whole um, shipping drama has been that people are talking about these transport issues in a way that they don't usually talk about. And you make the point in your book that the whole field of economics kind of persistently underestimates or ignores the costs embedded in transport, like the idea that there might actually be frictions. When people talk about competitive advantage, they usually talk about frictionless transactions. Um, and I think you even cite the, the the old example of you know England versus Portugal. The economist who came up with that never actually took into account transport costs when they said that, you know, it might be cheaper for England to do this and for Portugal to do this, then they can just trade with each other. Do you think the situation in global shipping, the fact that we were all absolutely fascinated by the ever given for the past week, do you think that's going to change that at all? Are people going to be more focused on the frictions 
caused by global transport or involved in global transport because of these issues? Absolutely. And that's a wonderful opportunity to uh, give a shout out to my latest book, which is called Outside the Box. Uh, It talks (laughs) about these problems with supply chains. And it explains why businesses that built these long supply chains systematically underestimated the risk. They made decisions about where to produce things, typically in Asia, by looking at production costs and transport costs. And they didn't pencil in the cost if, say, the goods don't arrive on time. Well, that can be a very significant cost. And when that happens, then all of the money that you saved on production may not turn out to be such a great deal. So I think we've seen a lot of companies now begin to reassess whether these uh, supply chains make sense constructed as the way they have been. We've seen in the United States, which is the place where we've got the, the best data on this, you've seen a lot of companies keep more inventory than they used to, right? It used to be that companies didn't want inventory. Everything was going to be just in time. Inventory is wasteful. Well, inventory is insurance, right? Inventory gives you something to sell in case your next delivery doesn't make it on time. So even though there's a cost, firms have been keeping uh, more inventory. Firms have been looking at multiple production locations rather than having everything made in some big factory. Yes, the big factory might give you great economies of scale, but if there happens to be a fire at the factory or an earthquake, or if there's a transport disruption en route, all those economies of scale aren't going to help. And and so you really need an alternative uh, source of production. And firms have been looking at these things. They've been going for redundancy. You know, there's a lot of interest now in resilience. Uh, it's actually a hard thing for a manufacturer to do, but we've been seeing a lot of attention to it, and that was even before the Ever Given was grounded in the Suez Canal. Uh, Mark, that was great. That was exactly, you filled in a bunch of gaps mm. for us and sort of our understanding of this, and really appreciate you uh, coming back on Odlock. Well, it's been delightful to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Mark. That was great. I found that very helpful, Tracy. I mean, I sort of had some sense that the um, the size of the ships was creating specific problems at the port. But his example about like the cranes, you can't put more cranes because it's mm. um, not any longer, but then they have to reach further into the ship. But that takes a few more seconds and that adds up like that really sort of helped like crystallize the issue for me. Yeah. The great thing about talking to Mark is he brings this fantastic economics perspective to global shipping, which yeah. I think, um, you know, not everyone does. But also the point about how building these massive ships maybe could have resulted in more efficiencies at sea had global trade actually picked up. But right. the bottleneck was always going to be on the port side when you're loading and unloading stuff. And the irony there, of course, is that the whole reason container shipping was invented was to try to minimize uh, costs on the port side. So you used to have you know, hundreds right. of um, laborers who would be unloading and loading these boxes by hand, and they'd all be sort of individually 
wrapped or everything would be kind of packaged differently. And it was really labor intensive, very, very expensive. So they moved to the standardized container shipping. And that was supposed to lead to more efficiencies, which it did. But then, of course, the shipping companies kind of got ahead of themselves, stacked as many containers as possible. And eventually the economy of scale just kind of goes away because the ports aren't set up to handle it. Absolutely. It's super interesting to think about like the sort of the different legs of the system and how economies of scale in one part create diseconomies yeah. of scale elsewhere in the system. And it also, again, this really helped me understand the situation. So like there is so much inbound demand for U.S. Uh, for Chinese goods coming to the U.S. Like we know this. It's voracious. There is some export activity. Obviously, as he mentioned, there's uh, soybeans and a few other agricultural goods. So it's not entirely one di directional. But in this situation in which there is a pretty big opportunity cost of not racing back to China and getting more goods. <laughs> and you have the delays already at the ports because there's a bunch of ships and because of the logistical issues. This idea like nobody wants to sit around and wait for all the soybeans to like fill up maybe a quarter or a third full vessel. So everyone just races back. Uh, very clear example of how messed up the whole situation is right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it gets back to this idea that no one expected a global pandemic in this way. And people hadn't really been building supply chains that would be robust enough to take it into account, which is kind of understandable. But again, you wonder how much that's going to change. Absolutely. We'll see. We'll get him back on in a couple of years. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And check out our guest, Mark Levinson's book, The Box, and the sequel, Outside the Box. And uh, be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. there. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about, Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.